Good morning and welcome back to the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Wolt, and today we're going to get coffee smarter by talking to Jay Rusky of Fringe Coffee and Goodland Organic Farms about climate change. Let's start by getting a few things on the table. There is no way for Jay to fully describe the impacts, effects, expansiveness, or unpredictability of climate change on farming in what amounts to about a 30-minute show. So if you're listening and you think, well, why didn't he say that? Or why didn't Ryan ask this? The answer is pretty simple. The show is only so long, and we're doing our best to condense some pretty big concepts into a fairly concise window. Second, Jay's voice is a bit gravelly, and he looks like what I imagine a very relaxed Laird Hamilton might if Laird wasn't so jazzed up on blended superfoods. Three decades working with the land have given Jay the perspective that comes with time, which makes him such a great resource for us and this show to talk about this very big topic. Finally, Jay is a farmer, and according to him, the farmer is the eternal optimist, which is frankly such a great line, and I wish I would have thought of it. While you're listening today, take a moment to follow at Fringe Coffee on Instagram, or head to FringeCoffee.com to learn more about the premium California-grown coffees that they're producing. Right now, make sure that stainless steel coffee tumbler is full, because it is time for the show. I appreciate you coming back on the show, and I know you're a busy guy and spending some time with us. I'm really excited to talk to you about getting coffee smarter today on the Roast West Coast podcast. Okay, see if I can help. <laughs> well, if anyone can help, I'm I'm sure it's you, Jay. Yeah. So for this show's purposes, first of all, I'm going to say I'm talking to Jay Rusky of Fringe Coffee. He was a guest on uh, last season. Um, make sure we link to that as well. But for this show's purposes, we're going to talk about climate change and kind of how that impacts farming and coffee in general. But I want to to make sure that we're talking about the same thing. So when we're referring to climate change, which is this huge, broad thing that no one agrees on, what does that mean to you, uh, Jay Rusky, as a farmer and a coffee professional? And, you know, how big is this or how small is it to you? Uh, thank you, Ryan, for having me back. And um, yeah, definitely uh, climate change is a, a hot topic, pun intended. You know, it's uh, like I've come personally to the point where I've already I accepted it years ago. So now um, I have a stance where I have to like the way we farm, the way we do things is is like try to figure it out. And so I'm done kind of debating it a bit. And so that's what Fringe is doing a lot of building resilient food production systems, uh, especially with outdoor crops. You know, when you're outdoor crops, you're, you're Every little thing kind of has an impact on not only like your crops, but your uh, the people who work on those crops. So the, there's a social uh, issue uh, regarding that. And for me, um, it's not about everything just getting higher and drier. It's a disruption in the seasonal flow, uh, daily flow of the environment. I've been now th- farming for 32 years. And so I can draw upon like different decades and I can kind of mentally put things into groups like, you know, 19, uh, 1990s, 2000, 2010. I mean, and so I, I, um, I've seen the changes 
of mainly like wind patterns. So I'm, I'm kind of, I dwell on wind a lot right now. When I started coffee, I was always worried about the, the frost and the cold weather because that's kind of a threshold that we worry about with coffee and avocados and lemons and everything is like trying to take advantage of this coastal Southern California environment to find frost-free environments because they're subtropical and tropical plants that we grow with irrigation. Uh, but then over the last three years specifically, it's the environment um, has been windy in Southern California. We get these like Santa Anas that are traditionally a fall event that are dry and uh, come in off the they're offshore. And we have sundowners, which are similar to that in the Santa Barbara regions. And those are dry events. And usually they're like a day or two, but we find that, that they are longer, drier, stronger, and they're almost year round. And so uh, one of the things I do daily is or design systems is, you know, dealing with wind. So, so there's a whole bunch of ways we can define climate change. And, and those are kind of my top thoughts regarding how climate change affects me and what I think about. Sure. You, you mentioned it's a disruption. Our interview today was actually delayed because of a wildfire in your area, which I think is, I mean, I don't want to say it's good for the show because it's terrible for everyone, but it's also interesting that we're talking about this today. Is that something that's happened to you more recently or you just mentioned uh, looking at farming over the decades, and you've mentioned to me previously on our previous uh, inter- interview that you think on a longer timeline than most people because of, of your farming experience. I shouldn't say most people, but just farming requires that you think on a longer timeline. Is it getting harder to predict what that weather pattern or what those disruptions will be in the future? I'm going to go backwards on that one. So, no, I can predict it'll be disruptive in the future. that's fair fair i think that's what resiliency is and i know now that's gonna be the new word we we overuse but you know i'm trying like farm resilient i teach my kids to be emotionally resilient too like there's all these resiliency features which means like i think we like uh, regarding agriculture one of the things i've learned from dr kelly calori was here the other day from the Bren school is you know we've We've worked on our food system to be as efficient as possible. Monoculture is one of the ways, you know. And so then if we get some environmental anomaly that comes along, it disrupts that system drastically, almost to the point where it fails. And so the traditional way of us trying to make our food system as efficient as possible, we need to now make it as resilient as possible. Because when something, if something's going to fail or something's going to, be a, a important variable that changes we need to be prepared for that so there is that and i, I go back to your you started off this question with fire you know I, I've, I've been touting that if you want to be a farmer in southern california you have to um have some firefighting skill sets and in fact i even have like a my county gives our farmers a special agriculture passes for catastrophes to help the firemen with the fires because we are a part of that we go through training um, and that's a resilient system. And the, the community really enjoys the agriculture belt because it's the agriculture belt that protects the urban population. So there's something to be said having that agriculture really supports not just the food system, but a, a buffer to the community. Going back to my wind comment, uh, one of the things that fire really likes is long, dry, hot winds. And where there's wind and, and fire together, it's, it, it moves quickly. 
And so if you reflect in the last like 15 years, and compared to the first 15 years of my farming from 1990 on, I didn't have a single wildfire or I had a couple of little things. Now we've, um, Santa Barbara County has had some historic fires. So it's part of it, you know, and I, I realized in the last fire, you know, my wife was like, oh, here we go. You're a phase one fire. We have all plans executed on getting these things. And we're all calm. Everybody else is running around. But we're like, oh, yeah, we've been through this before. And we're, we're emotionally a lot calmer than we've ever been on these things. And so we've matured and learned to live with it. So I, it is one example, you know, and I think if we're going to extremes, I think we'll get fire. I think we'll get, from what I can tell, on at least locally, that means it'll, there'll be like, some longer drier events, but when we get rain, we'll probably get heavier rains all at once. So that, that's another example of how I've repositioned my thought process in the long term is when I built this last coffee block, which was our special hybrid block, I put a big drain in. And everybody's like, well, you put a big drain in. And I was like, well, because when it rains, I'm not going to prepare for the 50-year storm. I would prepare for the 100-year storm that's going to come twice as often as we think. So it's kind of another example of me building my farming system, thinking about what type of disruptions I'm going to get. You said something earlier about growing coffee outside, which is what you do. You've been, and you've been creating a network of other farmers throughout Southern California. Do you envision a future in which we're growing coffee inside? Like some of the, there's some modern tech companies that have created indoor farming systems. App Harvest comes to mind. Is that something that you guys have looked into or you're thinking about or you see in the future? Or is that not something Fringe is looking at just yet? Well, I mean, we start our plants in a controlled atmosphere. So all our seedling stocks, um, we've been doing some hybrid development. We do tissue culture. And so and I've, I've grown some coffee indoors. But perennial crops at this point, unless you get some extreme prices, it's not an affordable way to grow crops because of the cost of the infrastructure for the greenhouses. Somewhat modified greenhouses, maybe some somewhere in the future with tunnels and, and things uh, to kind of give you not um, where you're pumping in cold air and hot air where you're controlling, but you kind of buffer the system to protect yourself. So there is that where we are, we are, have explored that. Currently, we uh, use like avocados as creating these environments. I think it creates a better tree, you know, having uh, more layered system because there's more biodiversity below the soil, above the soil. Right now, I think it makes a better cup of coffee. Um, I think when you start introducing controlled atmospheres, it feels like whenever we um, modify a growing system, we solve one problem and then create some more. And it's kind of fascinating whenever we tweak anything. I'm always like, oh, well, we solved it. Now let's, now we need to be very careful. Like, don't like, just sit back and say, we saw that everything's great now because something's going to sneak up that you didn't think of. Um, you know, you may bring like a coffee and do like a shade house and tunnels, all of a sudden ants show up. You're like, we're all ants. Oh, they like the environment too. And then you're dealing with ant. But I do feel like uh, monoculture systems are, we have to look harder at them and try to find better ways to grow higher quality crops. And, and I think there'll, there'll be consequences for that. Sure. It's the Jurassic Park problem. We create this, we bring this thing back to life or we change something and we, we do, there's unexpected consequences, which is, you know, humanity in general is unexpected consequences of our actions. Yep. Selfishly, as someone who drinks coffee and loves coffee, all of these things that you're talking about sound like they are very expensive to deal with. How do you envision 
kind of the effects of climate change and the effects on farmers, in particular in agriculture, to affect our coffee drinking experience. I, we've I've talked with a bunch of roasters in the past about what we should be paying for a cup of coffee. I think you and I talked about that, actually. How do you see these things impacting the ability of farmers and fringe farmers in particular, because you've got this network of farms that you support? How do you see this impacting their ability? It sounds like you're planning ahead and and by extension, you know, on the consumer who's looking for that kind of premium cup of coffee. Well, when I formed Fringe, the goal was to try to put a farmer first business. I feel like a lot of our food system is retail forward. And I feel uh, that uh, the farmer takes a burden of the risk without the benefits of the, the costs. And I see this time and time again in the food distribution system, especially for small, mid-sized farmers. So with Fringe, the goal was to try to get half the value back to the farmer. So that farmer can invest or first get the return on investment because with perennial crops, they plant a tree in the ground. They have no cash flow for three or four years. So they get to reclaim that investment. And then eventually, hopefully, they'll have a crop for you know, 15, 20 years that they can cash flow. So that's one part. But the second part of the system is what are we willing to pay for a good cup of coffee, a reliable cup of coffee? And this is analogous to other parts of the food system. So being here in Southern California, I get to kind of explore some sectors like the wine sector. You know, I did a little, not super scientific, but I said, well, what's the co- average cost of a glass of wine at a restaurant? And for five ounces, it's 12 bucks. Now, what's the average cup of a coffee? You know, right now for 10 ounces, it's like $2.50. And so you're basically like it's 25 cents per ounce per cup for coffee and $2.50 per ounce for wine. Yet, from my experience, it's a lot more work to grow coffee than wine. Yet wine has gained 10x the return. And especially here in California, there's wine over the hill. Yet the coffee has to travel thousands of miles to get here and go through lots of processing and all these holders and all that. So that's a like extreme example for me of like a just a little off kilter, not not where it needs to be. And so I hope that one thing that friends can do by growing coffee here and eventually get to the point where we can better explain to everybody that you know we're harvesting every individual cherry. We're not like picking a whole bunch right, through a machine, everything got hand-soared three or four times. Wine grapes don't get hand-soared. I mean, they're little bit bunches. You know, we don't hand-soar every little bean and then do it again and then do it again so that everybody can have a quality bean. Also, you know, you get the impacts of a supply chain that with coffee that has futures and hedge funds, you know, uh, future purchasing to hold prices uh, you see that like in Brazil right now, and those poor farmers got some frost coming through, and all of a sudden the conversation is protect the consumer's cup of coffee. Yet we have all these farmers that have already invested two, three, ten years into their coffee plants and now have to start over. Uh, but don't worry, they're, you know, they're, they're, the price will remain the same, so we won't change the supply. So try to change that conversation a little bit, and I'm not sure how I can all those things that um, can be altered. I think awareness is number one. And then choosing a coffee that you know can get right back to the farmer is number two. And there's not many options. So that's what Fringe is trying to do. 
It is interesting the perception of the price of a cup of coffee, especially comparing it to alcohol like you just did with wine. Um, just this week, I bought a can of cold brew to try. I'm not in particular a cold brew drinker, but it was something I wanted to just try and see in a can. And and it was delicious, And it was, but it was like $5.50, maybe $6. And I thought, well, this is really good, but I wouldn't pay that normally. It was just my immediate reaction as someone who drinks coffee and cares about coffee. I don't, it's just what I was thinking at the moment. And then later that day, I caught myself thinking about it again because I was drinking a can of beer I had just paid $8 for and didn't think twice about. And so I started to think to myself, well, this experience is relatively the same. You know, what was, why do I not question it for this beer? And I did for this cup of coffee in the morning. And I think about, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. And, and, you know, I don't want to, in one in particular, but it's hard to change a slow moving ship. You know, we've been thinking about coffee as a society one way for all these years and taking advantage of systems for a long time. It's hard to rotate people's perceptions. And so I know for myself, you know, admission saying that that was kind of a moment where I thought, okay, when you drink your cup of coffee or when you buy your cup of coffee, you need to start thinking about it more as a luxury product as opposed to, I deserve this. I Someone owes me this cup of coffee in the morning, which I think a lot of people feel no. un, unintentionally, not maliciously, just it's sort of that morning feeling. I get my cup of coffee. Yeah, I, I agree. Thank you for sharing the, the, the beer. I think it's more extreme with beer. <laughs> I think I have, some beer, I have some brewing friends that, you know, they're making turnarounds in, you know, in a couple of weeks and putting things in cans and getting great prices. And I'm like, well, yeah, I had to take like six years to make that cup of coffee for it. <laughs> it is a, a slow moving ship. And I do think it's all about education and quality and understanding that and it's just a complex coffee is complex and and people want sometimes simplicity in their cup of coffee. So. One thing we're seeing a lot in all of these industries we're talking about is uh, the conversation around water, especially here in Southern California and water rights with the Colorado River. Uh, you mentioned that, what you mentioned dry and hot. How do we see water being impacted? And I read a little bit about farmers and water rights in California, but I can't say that I really understand it. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people don't, but it seems like there's like a pecking order of who gets first dibs on the water and we're all kind of negotiating that right every year. Yes, it's super complex. Water in California goes back a hundred years and there's history and there's things that have happened, especially when there's plenty of water, there are things that happen that don't get highlighted until there's just no water. Right. And then you're like, wait, how did we get here? And then there's a whole, every region has a different water um, profile, water um, portfolio. You know, there's some have groundwater, some have Colorado water, some have desal. And so for every farmer, every region, it's a little different. We do know that here we are in California, which is probably one of the largest agriculture producers in the world, definitely in the United States. And you know, 98% of the crops are irrigated. <laughs> so we have this food system and, uh, and this community and society that's based on irrigated crops. And so how are we going to be better at our water? And, and you know, the water prices are all over the place throughout the state. You know, it, it's from $20 an acre foot to $2,000 an acre foot. It's, it just depends on where you are and what crops you're growing. All I know is that we have to grow a lot more like, I would say, like 
Israel and that region, you know, where every drop counts. So technology, how, how we grow, what crops we choose uh, is, is going to matter more. I do think we have, California has a pretty good infrastructure for capturing and gathering. It's both the natural geology of the Sierras and some of the systems we've created. But as we go through these more extreme changes, effective rainfall where it rains and it's effective enough to us be able to benefit from it is going to be key. And when those benefits come in, how we cherish it and take care of it. So those are some very general high level discussions about how we need to approach water. Northern California specifically, I know is in trouble because they don't have the same infrastructure as Southern California. And in Southern California, again, like myself, like in Santa Barbara, our Lake Achuma is at 49% capacity, which is two, two years left of water supply because of the unique nature of this lake. In 2016, we got down to 6%. So we're not like, this region's different. But if I go 150 miles north, I know there's some people that are like, won't be able to farm if we don't get average rainfall. I think we need about 130 to 140% of the average to get back to normal. It's a very fascinating time, but I'm, I'm worried, but I've been through some droughts before. And so somehow we seem to find some ways to get through it. There's that resiliency thing. I think one thing you said that I think is kind of important, and you mentioned this earlier too, is being able to preserve the water that we're receiving effectively. So if we get that 100-year storm or that 50-year storm, is that water all just washing away or are we, are we collecting it? Are we preserving it and then using it efficiently, I think, is, is part of this process. I, I would ask you just if you have any thoughts on, on changing climate and from your perspective, efforts that can be taken in agriculture to kind of improve or slow down the problem or if we're just kind of reacting. I mean, I think... We're definitely always reacting, right? And so I think um, what there's always this moment of correction. We see this in markets. We see this a, a lot in um, systems. Um, we used to see this a lot in uh, the early days of um, growing avocados. Like we would grow avocados and start gaining some valleys and some extreme areas, and a frost would come through and then wipe out those trees. And then we go, oh, we can't grow there anymore. Uh, we may find that a little bit with our water supplies, like, oh, we kind of went a little too, kind of asked a little bit too much of that given region for water. And we may find that those places aren't appropriate to get through this time. So there'll be this self-correcting of, of what regional production, food production systems really work. Because I think we got a little ambitious on some of our plantings uh, on different crops throughout the state. So I think that that's the um, first shift that we're going to kind of see. I do I do see technology coming into play a bit, um, both like real technology and managing the water, when to turn water off, those type of systems. And I feel like um, what we're doing on our small scale is trying to build better soils for holding water and be more effective. So we've been doing one of the things with avocados and coffee, the leaf layer from the avocados, build up organic matter for the coffee. And we'll even bring in mulch in our early days so that when we do irrigate, the water stays in the root zone and it's better absorbed by the plant. So this concept of uh, making uh, more effective water goes from like the granular scale around the plant and the, the bio rhizosphere of the plant all the way to the 
delivery system of the water to the farm. I'm shaking my head because it's so complicated uh, and yet something that we've been, you know, people, farmers have been doing for decades, centuries even. As a farmer, do you have to be an optimist or a pessimist or somewhere <laughs> somewhere in the middle to survive kind of emotionally? Oh, do you have to be an optimist? I, I, you know, the farmer is an eternal optimist, right? And then you also have to be able to like not think of, like a problem is going to beat you down. The problem's like, oh, I got a new problem. Let's go figure it out. I think that's what makes the successful farmer is um, understanding complexity, simplify complexity, and then finding problems as a sometimes welcome challenge. You know, so and I, if I reflect on some of my mentor, the farmers that have mentored me in the past, those are that's what they like to do. Uh, what about Fringe? Is there anything with Fringe going on that we should know about or Fringe Coffee, Goodland Organics that you wanted to share today? We made it through COVID. <laughs> so, <laughs> now, that was, uh, you know, that was been my celebration for the last six months. You know, it was, um, I mean, yeah, my farmers would made it too, but as a, the, the supporting infrastructure and system, I think that was key for me and appreciate all my farmers out there or all the Fringe farmers that have um, committed to get through this this strange time in our society. I feel like uh, coffee is more important to people than ever now. And there's been, a, the consumers actually brought coffee home a bit more and, and they seem to be a little more sophisticated towards how they're brewing and caring. And I think that's a great thing for, for coffee in general. Fringe itself is trying to now, as we prepare for the next couple of years, where we're really going to, a lot of the farms are going to start coming into production. So I'm doing things to prepare for, for that. Uh, we're going to be testing some brewing and some coffee experiences coming up. So maybe here in the Santa Barbara areas, I kind of bring the coffee to the consumer. So I'm, I'm beginning to play around with like more of the tail end of the process. And I'm super excited about what, what we have. I'm super excited about the coffees that are coming forward. I do think that um, the pandemic kind of close the door on whatever wave of coffee we were in, you know, third, fourth, fifth. And I think we're into a, a new new approach to coffee. So I've been calling it the coffee experience. You know, what, what's the new coffee experience? And hopefully it involves friends and family and loved ones and enjoying coffee, but the respect the brewing process, which respects the beans. So I'm kind of playing with that. And uh, then um, Fringe is committed to find unique ways to, reaching out to the consumer to continue to educate them about how it's grown and how complex it is and why um, you should pay a little bit more for your cup of coffee. I know that you guys, uh, when you mentioned experience, you were doing some farm tours. And one thing that the pandemic left a lot of time for was to start preparing for a future where I didn't have to think about COVID when I was traveling. We've kept our travel pretty minimal here, my wife and I. Right. Uh, but we actually kind of circled that Santa Barbara area and we're like, well, you know, it'd be fun is a, a fringe tour on our way out camping or something. So I wanted to uh, share with you a story before we, we finish up today, which is I told you last time we spoke about uh, the lime tree that we had. And I wanted to update you. We have three limes. They're not quite there yet, but uh, we're still committed. We're tending it every day. And uh, we had some some uh, issues with like a little leaf problem, gnat that we had to deal with. But it's not the same as what you're doing on a grand scale, but I feel uh, empathy for any any farmer because of the work that I've put into this lime tree for the last two years. Well, I'm glad you're approaching the harvest because that's very rewarding. 
I can't wait to see what drink or food you use with that lime uh, or those three limes. It might be like that first fish that I caught that we put in the freezer when I was eight, you know, for and kept it for 10 years because I wouldn't get rid of it. <laughs> well, don't do that. I, actually, what you should do is just you and your wife go out, pull, pick it and quickly break it open and eat it together and just cherish it. And, and, and then the second one you can put in the freezer for 10 years. Because <laughs> there's really nothing like harvesting off a tree and consuming it right there. I think a lot of people benefit from that harvest moment. I'm looking forward to it. Jay, I really appreciate you coming back and chatting with us about a very complex topic. And and I look forward to the next time we get a chance to chat. Ryan, it's always a pleasure talking to you. And next time you're driving around looking for a campsite up here, give me a call. Okay, to recap, climate change is a huge topic. And it isn't just about things getting hotter and drier. It's about disruptions. Disruptions in the seasonal flow of farming, disruptions in the seasons and in the weather. We are already making concessions to it in our everyday life, whether we realize it or not, because it impacts our supply chains, our food sources, and our weather. How many of you have adjusted your travel plans in recent years because of wildfire or hurricane? How many of you have had weather-related increases to your housing insurance, or read a story about farmers bemoaning an unexpected frost? As a farmer, Jay is past the point of debating about climate change. He's just trying to figure out how to move forward getting the best quality crops the most efficiently, while also dealing with the hand he's being dealt. For him, exploring technology that helps us be more climate-friendly and build resilient food production systems on his farm and sharing those systems with a network of fringe coffee farms in Southern California is one way to continue creating a coffee and food experience while dealing with the unpredictability of the future. We've mentioned a few times on this show that it takes a long time to go from a coffee tree first being planted to an actual crop of coffee being ready to harvest. One of the farms in the fringe network, Blue Tail Coffee Grove in San Marcos, California, is working towards that goal. We talked to the owner Kyle Rosa in season two of the show, And after some delays due to the pandemic and construction, his new cafe, Breakers Coffee and Wine in Del Mar, California, is finally ready to open. He'll be featuring his own coffee and locally grown coffee on his menu, right beside coffees from other regions of the world. By the time you hear this, the doors will be open and coffee will be ready to drink. I wanted to add a couple of show-specific vocabulary words today. Monoculture is when only a single crop plant or organism is grown on a piece of land. Think fields of corn in Iowa or almonds in California. Jay is incorporating his coffee trees in with other crops like avocados to get a more diverse and hopefully more climate-friendly crop that helps create better soil long-term. During the show, Jay said the term desal, which is a reference to where some farms in California get their water as opposed to a river or a reservoir. Desal is shorthand for desalinated saltwater taken from the sea and distilled into fresh water that is safe to drink. Desalination plants are one way California is trying to combat drought conditions. There's actually a desalination plant right here in Carlsbad, where I'm based, that converts 50 million gallons of seawater into fresh water, which they deliver to the county every single day. It accounts for nearly a third of all the water we use here. That's pretty wild, and I'm going to share a video tour of that plant on RoastWestCoast.com. That is all for this episode of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast. 
Thanks to Jay for returning today, and check out the coffee experiences that they're offering on FringeCoffee.com. They've started offering ranch tours that include coffee and fruit tastings as you walk the farm, which is pretty cool. Also, check out RoastWestCoast.com, where I'll link to all of the things we talked about during the show. Subscribe to the newsletter so you don't miss any upcoming episodes, and if you like the show, man, please tell a friend. It is the best way for us to grow, and I'd greatly appreciate it. Check back next week for a long conversation with Taylor Fields, the former Fortune 500 accountant turned coffee roaster who is quickly turning into a coffee mogul. It is one of the more rewarding interviews I've done, and I've been very lucky to interview a lot of incredible entrepreneurs over the years. If you are drinking coffee at home this week, check out the subscription offerings from our roast industry partners, Steady State, Morea, and Leap Coffee. I also want to shout out Cafe La Terre, Zumbar Coffee and Tea, Moster Coffee, Cape Horn Coffee Importers, and Camp Coffee Company for supporting this show. This episode of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast is, was, has been written, produced, and recorded by me, Ryan Wolt. I hope this episode has found you happy, healthy, and with at least enough sanity to make it through your day. And please, always tip your baristas, and be sure to drink good coffee.